Hello, and welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 299. Before we begin this episode, I have a quick announcement. If you're currently enrolled in college, we would love to have a chat with you. If you have some, uh, well, we have some ideas for future podcast content. Do we have ideas? I hope so. Uh, that you could perhaps help us with. Also, we would just love to get to know our listeners a little bit more. Um, if you have not already, please send a hello email to podcast at macfab.com. Uh, thanks to everyone who has reached out already. It's been fun having chat with uh, with people and getting to learn our listeners a little bit more. And then we also have, I have an announcement, but this is more of a me thing, I guess. Um, but for y'all out there in the ethos can help me. Um, so last year around this time, I did a a video stream, like a 24-hour uh, video game playing stream with Extra Life, which is a charity for children's hospitals. And uh, I do a stream for the Texas Children's Hospitals here in Texas. Uh, last year, I raised $2,600. I'm hoping to double that. The stream is going to be November 6th of this year. So that's November 6th, 2021, starting at 8 a.m. And that's not going to be on the MacFab stream. It's going to be on my personal stream. There's going to be all that stuff's going to be in the show notes and stuff, and I'll be posting it in our Slack channel and stuff. But it'd be awesome if you could just, uh, you don't even have to donate or anything, just come and hang out for a bit. Because um, sometimes when it's like, you know, six o'clock in the morning, it's kind of lonely sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and people can jump on the stream at any time, right? Come anytime. and just hang out. You, you start at eight, you go till the next day at eight. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, and I'm hoping to raise, uh, basically I have it set to $5,000 right now. So hopefully we can pull that off. Any any hints about what you're going to be doing? I think we're going to play, uh, we're going to try to beat the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time in 24 hours. I've never tried playing or beating that game in 24 hours. Um, the average time when you look it up is like 26 hours. So maybe I can pull off, because I've beaten the game a couple times and I kind of know like, the checkpoints that you have to hit in the game. Um, oh yes, the uh, the channel. It is. Um, I think it's twitch.tv slash crab foam. I think is what it is. <laughs> yeah. So uh, well, Parker's looking that up. Let's just say it again. November six, twenty twenty one at eight a.m. Anytime from eight a.m. to the next eight a.m. So between November six and November seventh, go to Twitch. Uh, dot tv slash crab foam c-r-a-b-f-o-a-m yeah and all the stuff that's on that link right now is like last year's charity stream stuff so i just got to update it for this year um and like because there's like a tracker for like the how much money you've raised and all that stuff i got to set that up um, okay so so one other quick question if somebody doesn't want to watch your stream but they do want to donate how do they do that Oh yeah, so there, I I have a link to my extra life page, and you can just donate there. And, and so how like, do I get that link? Uh, I gotta look that one up too. <laughs> so, well, uh, Parker will have more information as we get closer, and uh, in the Slack channel. So, if you go to macrofab.com slash Slack, uh, we have a bunch of really cool people there, and Parker will be posting information. And uh, you can always just show up and ask for information too. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's uh, it's always a lot of fun hanging out. Um, 
And I think so. Last year, I took like a break and like cooked a pizza. I think I'm going to do is I'm going to take when I take that break, I'm going to stream making that pizza because I made it from scratch. Oh, nice. So I'm going to just take a break. And I don't know how I'm going to do that yet because like I have to somehow get like a portable webcam. I don't know yet because I don't like to drop the stream because when you drop the stream, it like kicks people out of the chat and stuff. So I got to figure that out. But it should be fun. It's always a lot of fun. Nice. I am going to try to show up to that myself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to play Ocarina of Time. I think that's what won out. We discussed this like before the podcast a couple weeks ago. And that kind of won out um, of the ideas that I was throwing out. So anyways, electronics and engineering, which is what this podcast is about. <laughs> so it's been a while since we've had an episode uh, that has some... Um, I guess project updates on it. So Parker and I kind of like put a bunch into this one. Uh, so, so one of the things I wanted to kind of mention, I'm just I'm excited about this because I'm I'm at the very end of a project that I've been doing at work for quite a while now. Um, I've got an eight layer design uh, for a board or for an mm. assembly that actually has twelve different PCBs that all come together to make a single product. Um, now Are you can build most, it on one panel. No. No, luckily, good lord, no. <laughs> well, and, and and not all twelve of those PCBs are eight layers. There's actually only one. Oh, that's eight okay, layers. okay, 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 okay. Um, and in fact, that's sort of the that's sort of the whole point is that the eight layer is expensive. So, uh, but 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 the eight layer is also the biggest. Um, but we're using the eight layer as sort of like a backplane board that holds all of the necessary electronics, and then all the others are kind of module assemblies that connect to it. Uh, so most of these other boards that connect to it are either like a power supply board that we could just replace the entire power supply or uh, like different channel strips such that if some mechanical parts go bad, we could just take that strip off and put uh, another strip on mm -hmm. kind of thing. So the meat and potatoes is in this eight layer board here, which uh, is right at the very end. I've got six nets left to go out of 600 and or 963 nets which uh it's that's just a been a giant board. pain to make that fit into a board that's like eight inches by five inches or so kind of thing um but uh, i thought it'd be fun to have a, just a quick chat about attacking eight layer designs like first of all like how do you even know you need eight layers um, and then like, where do you start on something like an eight layer design? And in my career, this is maybe, I think this is the second eight layer board I've ever had to do. Um, like I've, I've done countless four layers and, and a handful of six layers out there. Uh, but I've only ever had enough requirements for an eight layer twice to, uh, need it. And this is certainly one. And the majority of this, this, this board does have a processor on it, but this processor is doing very minimal work in terms of um, there's nothing fast about this processor. Like the fastest thing it has to do is read some A to D's. Uh, and I mean, maybe a few hundred times a second, maybe. Uh, so almost everything the processor is doing is switching things around and, and just changing states. Um, all the rest is analog, which the thing about it is this is a mixer an eight channel mixer that has expansion ports to be able to support extra modules being plugged in. So you can add channels to it. So if you want more channels, just purchase more channels and plug them in basically. Uh, so the thing about it is with this mixer, there's 
by default, it's eight channels. So almost everything you do on this, if you route something, you're routing that seven more times. Uh, and, and some of the channels are stereos. So you're doing that another, a duplicate of times. Duplicate, so almost yeah. everything you do, like you have to, you, you're never considering one signal. You're considering like, oh, well, this one signal that has to go across the board, I'm doing, uh, it has to do that 10 times uh, yeah. kind of thing. And so considering signal integrity and how it gets across the board was a nightmare to begin with. And that's mainly why I chose to do eight layers is just so I can get channel separation and signal uh, separation and not get a lot of crosstalk. I mean, that's the, fingers crossed kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why on. you normally go with more layers is to have isolation. Typically. I, I, yeah. Isolation, but also, so this, I also have quite a few power supplies on this or power supply rails. Um, and a lot of that just has to do with the nature of what's, what's going on. So some of the things are reference rails and some of the things are higher voltage rails and some of the things are lower voltage rails for, for um, heat savings and things like that. Uh, so all said and done, I think in terms of the way my EDA tool handles it, I've got 12 different power rails. So I need multiple layers to be able to distribute all of that. So, so the way I kind of start with any PCB regardless of how many layers it is, is I, as I sort of just make a game plan of where the parts are going to go first, like the major parts and things like that. But then I try to work out, okay, how do I consolidate as much as possible to make sure that I'm efficient with the layers that I'm working on? Because um, I try to avoid, analog, digital, doesn't matter. I tried to avoid via hopping all over the board because mm-hmm. it, it ended up just looking like you shot your, your board with a shotgun uh, and then you got you're jumping between uh, layers all over the place and talk about signal integrity problems like that's a fantastic way to introduce them. So whenever possible, I try to get as many analog parts on one side of the board and try to route them on one side of the board uh, with the most minimal with with the closest I can get my traces. And, I mean, and I, as soon as I get an optimal route with that, I can then start focusing on other layers. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about analog. but I do the same thing with digital, too. Because you know why? It just looks nicer. <laughs> <laughs> it actually is better for signal integrity, too. Because um, there's that old joke where, like, electrons can't go around a 90-degree turn. Mm. I mean, they can. But <laughs> at certain frequencies, they like to bounce. They do like to bounce a little bit. So, And you got to think of the via is a 90-degree turn. So, Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, well, and yeah, changes in trace width, um, which happens at 90 degree turns or, or vias, um, that, that can have adverse effects. So if you can avoid it as much as possible, well, do it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another thing to consider, though, um, I, this, is, this is a problem I see sometimes with uh, kind of newbie players. It's something that you don't necessarily think about when you're sitting on, on your board if you can consolidate parts to have fewer unique parts, that becomes highly uh, preferable. Like take, for instance, if you have a 100K resistor on a board and you need a 50K resistor or you need a 200K resistor, or let's say you need a 50, 100, and 200, well, it might make sense to just parallel or series up a bunch of 100Ks in order to get the 50K and the 200K uh, because you got to remember that every unique part takes up space on the pick and place machine 
that's at your, your manufacturer. And if you're one of those guys that has 800 unique parts, it might not even fit on the pick and place machine. Uh, and then your contract manufacturer is going to kick it back to you and be like, look, this is just not manufacturable. Uh, at the same time, if you do need a bunch of unique parts, consider your load of how they go and put, you know, half of them on the top of the board and half on the bottom or work with your contract manufacturer to figure out, you know, um, how so many can you put, how in many one you can pass. get away with without overstuffing uh, their, their um, pick and place machine. Also realize that on a pick and place machine, uh, you know, your contract manufacturer may say, Oh, our machine has a hundred slots worth of available room. Not every part takes up one slot. Uh, some parts might take up two slots or some parts might take up four slots. If you are one of those guys that has to have parts in a, in a tube that takes up 16 slots on our pick and place machine, uh, that could have been 16 or, or single slot reels for, mm -hmm. uh, passive the, components. About that is I saw a picture on Twitter of, I think there were, uh, I think they were, um, What's the small, what's the new uh, uh, Raspberry Pi, the microcontroller one? Uh, the Zero? Oh, the, the, the microcontroller one. Oh, yeah, no, no. Um, but the, they're on like little dev boards too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know. What and they're doing. in the same format as, remember my prop stick? They're in the same the Pico. format as, as that. Pico, yes. Um, <laughs> I think it was a rope at Pico's in cut tape. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You got to have so, uh, a hell of a pickup arm for that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know many picking places that could actually pick that part up. Um, I think the Micronics that we have can, but I don't think you could use the uh, camera. I think it's too big for the camera. No. Yeah. Our Samsung would do it, but you have to have a special add-on. It's like a robot arm that comes over and it would, it would grab it. It's really slow, but it's meant for huge stuff. Is it like, is it like a claw machine? <laughs> the claw <laughs> yeah it's it's similar the operator's got to drive it over and it's got a little red button on, on the top you know, okay the that's actually a really good that's a that's a <laughs> an excellent point uh say you've got a new idea for the most amazing iot device out there picking an esp uh thing as like a daughter board to go on a, a new pcb you've designed those are not typically readily placeable by most cms it's huge. It doesn't yeah, necessarily hand placed. Yeah, they're usually hand placed. So yeah, keep that in mind. Like even though that thing is like you know it's a few bucks off of Amazon and it's really easy to set up. Like uh, you're gonna get a bunch of assembly cost. Uh, well, I've seen that. a lot with those modules. Is they also like to shift during reflow because mm -hmm. they have three edges have castellated terminals and usually you have to put a lot of paste on them mm -hmm. to kind of fill out that fillet when it reflows. Well, all that paste kind of wants to pull that part. So you have to really design those uh, packages really well. Hmm. So, uh, so yeah, back to eight layer design. Um, I kind of think that once, once you have a, a game plan in terms of your part placement, um, the, the additional layers will start to basically tell you what they need to be. Uh, now, there's a lot of pre-planning involved in that, um, that frankly, I'm not an expert in, uh, in terms of like, which layer would you want ground to be on? And which one would you want, you know, like with eight layers, do you put two 
power planes as the two innermost layers or do you put power planes closer to the edges and things? There's a, a wealth of information on the internet in terms of uh, what's good and bad based off of your application and based mainly like, are you doing an analog board? Are you doing high-speed digital? If you're doing mm -hmm. that or this, <clears throat> consider the options there. For me, with highly analog, I, I was able to get away with more because uh, most of this stuff is so slow, I was able to get away with, well, whatever I need this layer to be, it can just be that layer. It can just be that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's kind of nice, but but it, uh, but I was able so, to... What I've always wanted to try yeah. is having power and ground on the outsides. And, and all also, yeah. <laughs> I did that on... A, I, I have a... I have a board that I designed a few months ago. That's part of that um, stereo, that stereo compressor project that I've got going on that I haven't finished yet. Um, where I did that, it's a four-layer board where all the signals are on the inside, and it's power and ground on top and bottom. And so, and what I would do is, I would do via and pad on all the parts, so you yeah, can't, so even you can't see, see anything. <laughs> and so, you have your your vias go straight into the signals. Yeah. Big brain time. Big big brain. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I thought it'd be just, that would be fun to talk about. Uh, just I'm I'm excited because earlier today I I counted my nets. I'm just like oh six more. And of course, like two days ago, I had two hundred nets left to do. And it, and now I'm like the amount of time it takes to do a hundred and ninety four nets is the same amount of time it takes to do those last six. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the I do agree with the adage. I I kind of do, I will do a little pre planning. I I typically will do a four layer board if I know I'm like only going to build a couple or whatever. But if I know it's going to be a product, and I know it. The PCB price is uh, a considerable portion of the product price. Then I go two layer, right? But four layer is what I really like to do. I've only done a couple six. I've never done an eight layer. Um, but yeah, six layers. And that was for the old pinball system. And that was because, well, I just wanted six layers is really actually what it was. I, I well, wanted, you also had, like, I had multiple a dedicated high power layer. Well, it, uh, no, because yeah, I had your ground. Your were all on that, uh, on a layer, right? No, 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 no. I thought it was. That was in its own isolated area. I had, uh, it was signal 3.35 ground signal and i can't remember and the other oh and the other one was 12 volts so at three power rails as, as but that system had a lot of mixed um topography i guess it's good nah, that's not a good word for it but mixed mixed power power rails like there was a lot of 3.3 volt there's a lot of 5 volts and there was a lot of 12 volts mm -hmm. and uh topography is not the right word for that but um it gets the point across again and then when we went to Pinotar, um, I was like, that never again. We're doing 3.3 volt for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Not just a whole bunch of shared stuff. Well, that it got we were able to go down to a four layer board um, because of that. We were able to axe two whole layers because we just went, everything's 3.3 volts. That's it. And then, like any higher voltage, like 12 volts that has to come off the board, you just, I just routed a big trace there. Because I could. I found the, uh, the the difference in price between a six layer and a four uh, eight layer 
is actually not considerable. Uh, once once you get past four, like it, it's it's staircases up slightly. Yeah, it's just pretty much just it's almost a linear graph. So like mm. there's between two and four is like uh it's it's, it's almost like a uh inverse log function. <laughs> okay. It is. Well I, yeah. like the jump between two and four is really big. Yeah. And then but but four to six is smaller, and then six to eight is even smaller of an increase. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Once they have to get into internal layers, like they just know. Like you, you pay up front for the for the four, and then after that, it's not as much. Yeah. yeah and and it's funny. Uh, the the first eight layer board I did, it it was required to be eight layers, mainly because it had a BGA on it that I had to escape. But like that just the BGA guarantees eight layers. That particular yeah. one. Uh, oh, this I'm one just has so many signals that it's. Uh, um, I, I bring for it's just a regular log function. My bad, not inverse log for some reason. For some reason, I, I just got those mixed up. <laughs> but yeah, this one I have. I just have enough signals to warrant multiple layers. Yeah, I really kind of want to see this board when you're done. I, I put a, I actually put a picture of one of the layers up in our show notes, and this is just one layer that I I have distributed um, power planes about just to get things all over the place. Here, let me, I'll, I'll put it up on the stream. I don't know if I can share this with everyone, um, but the, but yeah, for the stream, this is fine. Well, it's definitely low enough resolution where I don't think you can do anything. Uh, yeah, well, and like, it's just colors, right? <laughs> yeah, just colors. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big fan of using big polygons to um, for low impedance uh, for power supply stuff. So actually um, in this picture, like the big pink area is all my digital stuff. And I kind of worked it out where it, it just stays nicely contained on one side of the board. Uh, and then everything else is either uh, power for op amps or um, uh, reference voltages for like mm -hmm. stability and things like that or stable um, voltages to send around. So, uh, yeah, so but far. I like using big polygons to distribute everything as much as possible. Well, I can't wait till that product comes out and we actually can see where it goes into. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. We, uh, given that this is the first PCB round, I'm sure there, there's probably something that needs to be adjusted on it. So, uh, you know, we'll get these uh, PCBs in. We'll, we'll work through it. So I'm expecting um, 2022 is when we'll see this in production. So I've been, my PCB project I've been working on is the old prop fan. Um, podcast a long time ago, started this project to build a, basically a fan controller for my, my Jeep. And uh, what happened was I actually ended up going away from an electric fan set up on that Jeep project. And then, so that project died. Um, but with my current rebuild of that same Jeep, I'm actually going back to an electric fan setup. Um, but I'm not building an electric fan controller anymore. I'm building like a multi-gauge. Because um, mm. I, I was talking, oh, I can't remember what podcast it was, but I was talking about, um, there's a couple different products out there that do this like 
plug in like five sensors and then like you can configure the screen to display what you want it to display. They all have weird compromises that I can't figure out why they compromise that way. So I am aiming to build the no compromise version of this. That's such an engineer like way of looking at it. I don't like yeah. the way you do it, so I'm going to make it uh, do everything. And then it ends up doing it the way you want to do it. So, well, I'm not going to make this as a product. I will. Yeah. This would be uh, will be open source, though. Like, I'm just going to say, if you want to build it, go build it. I am not supporting this at all, though, because um, I think there's going to be something out there. Someone's going to want this because it's uh, it's really it's going to be no nonsense. And it will require, like, if you're going to configure it a different way, you have to program it that way. Like, I'm not doing, like, menu-driven selections or anything. It's going to be, like, you plug it in and go. Um, so for screen and navigation, because you have to display because what Because what this thing will do is it needs to have an analog front end that's going to read a bunch of sensors... And then it has to have a screen to display it and then maybe some buttons so you can like scroll through messages or like acknowledge alerts. Cause one of the things is you want it to also like beep at you when like a sensor is out of range, like transmission's getting too hot and then you just push okay. Right. And keep driving. <laughs> um, so to show the uh, temperature or show all the readings and that kind of stuff, um, I'm, I'm uh, going to. I found a Chris. Was it Crystal Fonts? Is the company um, CFA six three five dash TFK dash KL, which is like this this uh, serial communication screen with buttons on it, with like backlights on the buttons and stuff. Um, and I picked that like, screen. A lot of the hard stuff taken care of. Yeah, a lot of the hard stuff's taken care of, like the physical design. Okay, the physical design is already taken care of, and it's a character display, which is what I wanted. I didn't want a graphics display. I want the display like transmission temperature is this. I don't want like a graphic or anything because I want it to be easy to read. Like you just look at it and you know what it is. Also, potentially easier to code. Very much easier to code because I actually already written code that like works with the screen format mm -hmm. is that like increase the or add on like the navigation function um for that screen or that module i guess but the other thing about it is on the back side there's a connector and then what you do is your board plugs into it and then you just kind of screw it all together and then it's a brick of electronics now and so it actually kind of handles how do you mount it as well yeah, screen. this this board looks like it has a handful of convenient just mounting holes on it. Yes. Nice. Um, so that's screen and navigation. Then for the temperature, I picked the I think I told this uh, talked about this chip before, but it's the LTC twenty nine eighty three, and I think I made it the joke of how do you verify or how do you secure your supply chain by picking the most expensive parts possible? That's like a forty dollar <laughs> chip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it yeah, and it it directly does RTDs thermocouples and thermistors. So it has twenty channels. Yeah. And now That's some nice. sensors because it does basically any kind of temperature sensor you can think of 
you can hook it up to this thing. Some sensors take more channels than others. Like I think thermistors, yeah, two and three wire RTDs and things, they're going to yeah. take up. Yes, more than and thermistors one. take I think two because mm-hmm. you have a sense. Uh, you have a uh, a, a feed resistor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they call it a sense resistor, but you're basically because you have to put you have to feed a certain amount of current into your thermistor. Which this um, thing probably has like constant current drivers and yes, everything. It has all that. <laughs> yeah. Has These all chips that are amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and because basically what I'm going to be most automotive sensors are there's two of two kinds, really. You have thermistors and then you have five volt analog sensors that are active sensors. So like you give it five volts and a ground and then it spits out a variable voltage that's linear. Um, those are, there's probably other ones out there, but those are the two major ones that I'm going to support, um, uh, with this, uh, I'll probably put in the code for everything else just to have it in there. So like, if you want to do use a different sensor, you can, but, um, all automotive grade sensors are going to be in those two categories. Um, now the problem is I'm running, I'm going to run a parallax propeller cause I've written a lot of code for it and I, you can buy those cause no one really uses those in products, unfortunately. And they're expensive. And they're expensive in power. Actually, no, they're one of the cheaper ones now. <laughs> yeah, those are one of the cheaper ones now that you can buy. Um, but it runs on 3.3 volts. And now the LTC 2983 can run at 3.3 volts. But the problem is when you do that, um, those inputs the, on, the, on the ADC side of that chip can only accept like 3.3 volts as the max, right? Because the uh, they probably have like ESD uh, clamping on it that goes right to that rail. And that would not be fun if you tried to put 5 volts on it because it would, you know, burn up those ESD, chip, uh, ESD diodes in there. Probably other bad things will happen too. Um, so you got to level shift it. And so I actually, I started looking in my library and parts and I had some lo- I had some level shifters designed but there were nothing I really like I had to use two of them because I only had like there were bi-directional level shifters but you had to like set if it was going one way or the other way and so mm. it wouldn't work for a spy uh because I needed I needed bi-directional communication all the time right because you have a clock and then you have data coming back and data going forward and then a chip select blah 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 Etc. Et so I picked the TXB0104DR, which I can shift between 3.3 volts and 5 volts, and it's a bi-directional without having to um, set what direction you're going. It like it according to the document auto detects. So we'll see. <laughs> How does it do that? <laughs> TI magic. That's that's great. Um, and on a previous podcast, I talked about the power filtering for it. And this is, I basically lifted the design straight from you. What, when I, when I found this, it was linear tech, but then they got bought up by analog devices. So now analog devices stuff is all over the PDF, but it's the comprehensive. Our, our, our projects are so, uh, so old that companies get bought <laughs> during the design, <laughs> during designs. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the comprehensive power supply system designs for harsh automotive environments. Uh, if you just Google that, it will pop up. Um, but it uses the LT8672, which is a basically a ideal diode simulator mm. for power protection input. 
it uses a MOSFET and then it makes sure that uh, reverse polarity doesn't happen and that kind of stuff. It's a pretty sweet little chip. Um, and then for the power regulator, I'm using the LT8614. I'm actually using two of them, uh, one for five volts and one for 3.3 volts. And it's really good. Um, they have really good rejection of noise from like the noisy power 12 volt line that's going to be coming in. Um, and that handles everything that a, a uh, awful automotive power supply can handle, uh, can throw at you. If you look up that PDF, there's, or the or old podcast that we covered, I can't remember what episode, but put it in the show notes. Um, because it was like, you, some things you won't even think about that it covers. Um, like, what happens if you just disconnected the battery while the engine's running? That, that's not a good thing to do. Um, causes a voltage spike of like 100 volts. <laughs> Only 100 volts, actually, if you're lucky. So you have to put in protection for that. Now, this is where that was all that stuff that I just talked about was covered under the original scope of the project. I got so that all done. This is the yeah, new stuff. I, new stuff. So I got that all done and I'm like, man, I'm only using like half my IO pins on my, my parallax propeller. And, and I'm also like thinking about the code and I'm like, oh, and I'm only using like three of the cogs because it's a, it's a multi-core processor. And so it has eight cores essentially. And then it uses one like central Ram uh, system. Um, and uh, so I was like, okay, I have like six. No, I have uh, five other cogs to like do stuff with. So what should I do? And this, I'm like, you know okay, by the way, this is an excellent way to start feature creep. I have <laughs> pins and I have cores in my processor. They need to do something, right? <laughs> That's actually a good point. That's exactly what's happening here. <laughs> it's totally what's happening, and now, I love it. Now, this is something I've always wanted to build, but I was going to build it as like a separate product. Because it's something I was actually thinking like about, because uh, I was watching a show called Roadkill, which is um, the hosts go out, and then they like rescue a car from a junkyard and fix it, and then like try to road trip it across like America. And they usually like break down 80 times and stuff catches on fire and that kind of stuff. One thing that I always thought about is like the exhaust leaks on those cars have to be awful. And, um, and a lot of times they're driving around and like, like rat poop and stuff is like floating in the car. Cause it's like, you know, the car has been sitting there for 50 years. Yeah. Um, so I got to thinking, I'm like, wouldn't it be, it would be awesome to have in your project car an air quality meter to make sure you're not killing yourself while driving your car around, <laughs> like by, you know, see <laughs> carbon monoxide, particulate matter that kind of stuff um and so i'm going to because add this that is this. a real big problem that happens every day i don't know people suffocate in their cars in the winter all the time from carbon monoxide sure so like all it takes is a slightly rusty hole in your floorboard and an exhaust leak and you know you're dead um, so actually that yeah, is a big problem um now you could just get a carbon monoxide sensor and just kind of like stick it on your dash right and then solved um, and actually I've seen people do that, but you know, what's the fun in that? So we're going to add air quality, uh, to this. And so I found a, this is a very interesting sensor because usually when you think of a sensor, it's like a IC that just goes on your board, right? Yeah. Um, this is a box. 
with a fan on it. Like an intake fan? Intake fan. And so it's it's the it's by Honeywell. It's a HPMA one one five C zero dash zero zero three. And it's a it's a uh, they have a couple different flavors, but this is like their premium one because it can t- it can detect parts per million of two point five, I think it's two point five micrometer. I think it's micrometer particulate size, which is like the particulate size that can really mess you up because it's really, really fine. Um, so, um, I'm going to add that sensor in there. Um, that's mainly for like, I kind of just want to see like how, like if you drive through like a dusty road, does how dusty does it get inside your car? That's kind of like what I'm doing for that though. Um, then there's a VOC sensor. Um, the Sensorion, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, SGP40, which is a VOC sensor. And then same company, SHTC3, which is a temp and humidity sensor. Um, and in chat, engineer Bob says, I'm calling fake news on that. Is it really a problem? Really? Question mark. Go watch Roadkill. And there's a lot of times where they're wearing masks and respirators because they can't breathe while driving these cars. <laughs> I guess I the the uh the whole reason why I even asked that question is um I was not aware that those things happen and uh, I uh that air quality in your car is a uh is something to be afraid of. I m- most modern cars no. Like if your car is not rusted piece of a hunk then yeah, <laughs> totally fine. But I mean like if you're uh, have an older car that's got exhaust leaks, yeah, that's a that big problem. Um, now it's way cheaper to fix the exhaust leak than to go and design a air quality meter for your car, though, for sure. <laughs> um, but this is more for adding it in into this product because I can. Right? What's the worst thing I could do? I just depop it later and just sell a version. Of no, I, th- I think it. I think it's great. I love this kind of feature creep because it's feature creep that has a purpose maybe the purpose is not um fully required but like you're you're uh, you're adding features to the processor because you need to fill out those pins with something and this is in the same vein of what you're going for also i love it because you're you're making this open source you said so this is just more information for people who might want just the uh, uh, the air quality sensor thing, and mm-hmm. not the rest of your project, right? Exactly. So great. There's there's info there. Yeah. Um, the other thing I need to do is I am going to bring back in the like it being able to control relays because I originally axed that, but I'm just going to bring that back in, and all that is is optocoupler outputs on it, and uh, so that way you can just hook up a external relay and you can do whatever you want for that. Um, cause that way you can, you can code in, um, you can actually put in temperature control for fans and stuff. If you want to, I'm, I'm probably not going to do that, but I have the IO. And so boom, done. Yeah. Um, add that back in. Cause that's actually already designed. So I just got to pull up an older version of the board and GitHub and rip that part out and put it back into the, into the project. Seems like um, a lot of this, you could have, um, just, non-popped on the board and then if you want exactly. it down the road just stuff it exactly that's exactly what i was going to do because like optocouplers are 
uh, especially the ones I was using were, you know, they're a couple bucks a pop. And mm. so it's like, well, that's like, you know, $10 right there where you don't have to populate them if you don't want to. Right. Um, so really the last thing to do on the schematic side is to choose how to protect the inputs to the LTC 2983, which are all these analog inputs. So they, they do have ESD protection and they do have a, uh, op amp. I, I don't think they say an op amp. They say a buffer, which is an op amp in there. Um, uh, they're buffered inputs. Um, and why I was looking at was their demo board. That's like, this is a protected demo board. It's got all they did was put a hundred ohm in series resistors. And I wonder <laughs> if that's all I should do. I think they they expect them at one watt, which seems way overkill. Um, but maybe like some one watt surface mount resistors, hundred ohm, and that's it. You know, um, so I designed an industrial uh, temperature sensor at a first job that used a chip that was incredibly similar to this. Um, it was an analog devices. Uh, part but like i looked through the data sheet it must be the same family um and i yeah. and i know like we got we put um ferrite beads on all the all the lines for um uh EM, emi compliance basically and uh but that's that's what we needed for protection um and then uh, they just broke out to connectors for people to connect thermocouples and things like that so i don't think you need to go overkill on this yeah i think i'm just going to put I'm going to do what their demo board does is put hundred ohm resistors. Um, and then, uh, so in chat engineer, Bob says we use three watt, 10 ohm resistors. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It gives the MOVs or TVSs something to work against and it does help reduce energy. So when you have a high energy event, those resistors do snub it before it gets to your, your, delicate inter, uh, integrated connect uh, component there yeah i mean obviously you just have to keep in mind um if you're using resistors and things like that on your current sense lines then that's going to yes yes you do have to the thing about your current sense lines is you they already have a resistor there so you don't need another 100 ohm there yeah okay okay yeah 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 sure. and usually those current sensor uh resistors are higher value so you they don't need to be as high wattage you're just talking about the voltage sense lines themselves. Correct. Yeah. That's really the only thing that gets exposed to the outside world uh, on the temperature side mm -hmm. or temperature sensing side. So. Cool. Oh, adventures in plastic injection molding round four, five. I think we're at four now. I think, I think we're at four. In fact, okay. So I actually, I wrote down a, a timeline of this. So, uh, just a quick recap for everyone. I've got some parts and I'm getting um, injection molded. And for the past handful of months, I've talked about um, what I've been going through designing this with this uh, local company. So if you, I don't know the, the episode numbers off the top of my head, <laughs> you're going to have to go back and listen to all of them if you want to get uh, get everything. But uh, uh, so I'll, I'll give a recap though. So I, I designed this little plastic actuator, which is a little switch thing. So so I'm, I'm gonna interrupt real quick though. Yeah. So what we should do is once this arc is over, yeah, do like a full thing. Do a one episode that just covers like start to end. Yeah, I like it. it. And then um, and maybe do like documentation that you've read. Like you don't have to write anything, but stuff that you've read that helped out. I dig um, it. Yeah, let's do it. I think it'd be a good episode. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is, 
my third time, I think, going through injection molding apart, but this is the most intense. Let's just put it that way. Um, so, uh, yeah, so this, this part I've, uh, I've got uh, going on here. We, we've got the mold now uh, here in Denver. So the mold was originally made in China. It got outsourced to there, and now it has finally been uh, brought stateside. So uh, we've had to pay for the mold now, which uh, – so, so just in case you are interested in getting a part molded um, – I'll give you guys just like a general gut feel of cost here. So say you have an idea for a widget, some kind of plastic thing. Um, expect to spend somewhere between say fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars and forty thousand dollars. Somewhere in that range for the mold, not for production, for just the mold. Now I my guess is for most little things, you're gonna be way down towards the fifteen thousand dollar range. Uh it it's like car bumpers or something like that that is massive and takes just a ton of steel and a ton of work that'll push you closer towards the higher and stuff. Or if you have like really crazy requirements and really complex geometry, that's when you start getting to the higher side of the uh, mold cost. But we were, our part is small and it's not crazy. So it's, it was closer to the uh, uh, bottom side. Uh, so yeah, we, we've, we've got everything, uh, the mold in and our, the plastics manufacturer, now that we have the mold in, uh, they did a whole, not a production run, but a pre-production run here where they were tuning the mold to the machines that they have. So I think we went on a 60 ton machine, which is, uh, on the low side of machines. Um, they go, is that, is that how from, much, that's not how much the machine weighs, but how no, much, that's how much it pushes. <laughs> The plastic yeah. in? <laughs> yeah, at this particular location, they have machines that range from 10 to 400 ton. Uh, okay. And so, like, a giant, like, they, they, I said car bumper earlier. That's the and uh, the part that they use to represent a big plastic piece. Okay. Uh, so, a, a car bumper might take up 300 or 400 ton thing because you just have to push plastic until it spreads all the way out, you know? Yeah. Uh, but my, my part's small. Uh, so, and... The material's not crazy in it, so we're able to get away with a 60-ton machine. But but what's nice is their manufacturing engineers went and tried a bunch of different variety of uh, temperatures, uh, pressures, and uh, and materials to kind of find what is the best secret sauce to make it work. Because we did have, um, before the, the mold was shipped over to America, we had it uh, shot a few times in China to just get a feel for what the mold is creating. And we approved that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the exact same machine. Um, and so these guys wanted to fine tune it. So they've made about 6,000 of my parts, just kind of figuring out like what are the best, you know, parameters on the machine to get it, get it working. Uh, and, and it's funny because right before they did this uh, test, they had actually given me uh, two bags of two different materials or the, my, my part in made in two different materials. And they were like, hey, can you tell us which one of these you like better? And, uh, and I eventually picked one and they were like, oh, damn it. Uh, and I picked the <laughs> one they didn't want me to. They were like, what about this bag? Do you like these ones? And, uh, and I picked I guess the one, one they one didn't One material is a lot easier for them to work with. That well, no, no, no. no. Here's, here's the whole reason. What was funny about this. Apparently... Apparently, so the requirements for my part 
with um, just general flexibility because it's a, it has a spring mechanism in it. Uh, but I need it to be semi um, transparent because because it, it's going to illuminate with an LED uh, through it. Uh, so uh, when they made these parts, the, the, these are the bags that they were showing me. When they made these parts at a place in China, at wherever they had it done in China, apparently they just had a bag of stuff on the ground that they just threw in and, <laughs> oh, and no. shot that. <laughs> and they've had that bag sitting on the ground for six years. And nobody knew what it was. And I was like, I like that. I want that. <laughs> and I didn't know that. I didn't know that situation. So they were like, ah, oh, so now we ha- they had to go and figure out what the material was. That's so like that, was- that beer we made. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was. Now, here's the thing. Uh, it's not as like, it's funny, but it's not as bad as that. They knew what the general material was. They just didn't know where it was purchased from. Okay, uh, and That's they wanted to they wanted to buy the exact same stuff if possible. Uh, so, so, so the the beer story, yeah, is we brewed Steve and I brewed a batch of beer, and we just I had like three years worth of hops just in my freezer that was just in a jar. Everything that was left over, I just threw in there. We took that whole jar and then yeeted it into the into the uh, boil. <laughs> and that made a really good porter. It was so. excellent, and it is. <laughs> Absolutely impossible in Not all of case. history to ever brew that again. No, because we don't know what we have no idea what went into that it. was, <laughs> but it was good. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, luckily, the bag was um, polypropylene, and they knew it was polypropylene. Um, and what's nice is it was natural polypropylene, which you can just was, go it was out free and buy range natural. and aged for six years. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, not not caged polypropylene for sure. <laughs> no, it was just mystery bag polypropylene, uh, and and like I said, it was it was natural. So luckily, you can just go to Dow and buy natural polypropylene, right? Uh, so they also uh, in this in this run after they kind of figured out polypropylene, they also shot polyethylene. Uh, I, they called it general purpose polyethylene, but uh, I kind of laughed because as soon as they gave me the part. You could, you could just compress the entire thing. It was like gummy. Uh, the whole part had just, it, it stayed structurally the same, but it, you could just completely deform it to nothing in your hand. So it was just, the way I described it, it was just gummy. Uh, wouldn't, like it would function, but not good. Like the, the button, you would feel it like kind of gooey on your fingers so that's that's no bueno so polyethylene was out we ended up going with just natural um polypropylene uh which hey great because it's easy to get and uh and it's not terribly expensive so they've kind of worked out all the 11 herbs and spices between the material in their machine to make it uh make it work right so i have a bag of like 1500 or so and uh I said they originally shot 6,000 of them. They gave me 1,500 and they kept another bag. And I love this. I think this is, this is great customer service. If you ask me, they kept a whole bag of these and they put 5,000 in this bag. And then they put that bag in a box and they're letting it sit on one of their employees in in the office. They're letting it sit on the floor. They're going to let it sit there for a few weeks and they're going to pull it out occasionally and measure some of the parts to make sure that they don't deform just sitting there because when it gets to our office they, and it just sits on our shelf to waiting to be used, they don't want it to uh, be damaged or, or, or get deformed. Mm. And if it does, they'll go to 
um, like thousand uh, pieces in a bag as opposed to five thousand pieces in a bag. I thought that was great. That's a, I think that's a great little test for them to do because um, they're looking out for our inventory. Because I mean, I guess they don't want to shoot a hundred thousand of these and then we come back later and we're like, oh yeah, seventy thousand of them are are bad. Yeah, the bottom of the box the are shelf. crushed. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So I, I don't know what kind of fallout we'll see on these. Uh, I, I actually don't expect to see much on them. They're such a simple part, and there's not a lot to go wrong with them, other than perhaps the spring mechanism getting stretched and broken or something like mm. that. But I have taken the, the spring and like yanked on it and pulled it a good long way, and it takes a lot of effort to break the spring. Um, so I, I think that's a. I think I'm I'm happy so far with how it's turned out. So. Let me give you just a quick overview. Here's the story so far. So if anyone wants to get into plastic molding, um, these are the steps that I've had to go through and uh, the times that I've had to pay for it, uh, just so you know what's going on. And your your mileage will vary. This is just how this company is doing it. So I submit my, the first thing is I submit my 3D CAD and they do a whole file review. We make slight adjustments on things based off of what's, you know, realistic and not. So it's basically like how, like tweaking it for it to make it actually manufacturable, that kind of stuff, draft exactly. angles, all that good stuff. As soon as the, uh, as soon as they're comfortable with the part and I'm comfortable with the changes, uh, we submit it for the first mold making. And that is, uh, at least with this company, I had to give them 50% down. Uh, so if you, if you're thinking about, you know, $15,000, you got to have half of that ready right then. Um, so after the molds made, uh, now it's, it's worth noting, they only cut one cavity in this mold. This mold is a four cavity mold. They only cut one at, for this first proto, uh, and then they shoot a couple. So I got maybe, I think it was a hundred parts, something, um, as just like an initial, Hey, check this out. They came, the parts were really great, but there was a few small changes. We adjusted the mold slightly. Um, and approved it. Uh, so they went and uh, machined the remaining four cavities in the in the mold, shot some more, sent them to us. And we were happy with them. So we said, great, send the mold over. As soon as we say send the mold over, we had to have the other 50% payment for that mold. Um, it gets shipped over. For us, we were able to fly it over for not much. The shipping was great, but you can save money if you put it on a boat. If you've got three months to wait for your mold like you could you can do that i mean now it's like six months but yeah yeah right 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 <laughs> um a thing to a thing to note uh if you ship a mold over there is duties and taxes on that so it's not just the mold cost you got to pay you got to pay on those too so just keep that in mind so it came over to the states uh we then did uh our third round of prototyping, which was where they did the adjustments on their machines, shot about 6,000 units, and I have it in hand. As soon as we uh, final approve these, we're ready to go for production on that. So that's sort of like how it has walked down the line in terms of that. Now, that's that's if you're doing plastic manufacturing in the States. Um, if, if we had approved the mold to be done in China or wherever else, uh, we would have kind of already been past that step and been closer to production at this point. So, and I ha this has not been absolute priority one for me at work. So I haven't been like hounding this project. Um, I'm 
I have many other projects I'm working on. This has nothing to do with even that board I was talking about earlier. So uh, I've been kind of letting this one uh, move forward as soon as uh, uh, as soon as things are ready. But I'm I'm not um, pushing this project as fast as possible. So this has been a handful of months. I think if if I was on the phone with them every day, I probably could have knocked all of this out in say three months, four months, something like that. If this that was, was sound about top right. priority. So just keep that in mind. Like if you have a small plastic piece you want to make, you're going to go through a handful of prototype rounds. It's going to be a handful of months and you're going to be dropping some money on the mold. Yeah. So as soon as, as soon as the whole project's wrapped up, I think that's a great idea. Let's, let's have some show and tell and, um, and then we'll actually go through it. There's still some updates that we might do to not the mold. We might actually adjust the piece itself by adding extra parts to it. So um, we just kind of had some ideas about that a few weeks ago. So we're working that out. And if that's the case, then I'll uh, talk about that as well. Cool. I think that's going to end our podcast this week. I think that's it. So, so that wait, was. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So oh. if you listen to the podcast still right now and you have time on Tuesday after work, Come check out our live stream. It's twitch.tv slash macrofab. We usually do like a pre-show, which is just Steven and I just like shooting the shit and talking with chat. It's always a lot of fun. And then we usually do like 10 minutes afterwards. It depends really though. So you can go now, Steven. Okay. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Steven Craig. And Parker Dillman. Later, everyone. Take it easy. <laughs>